those of us who are born again believers in Jesus Christ know that we are called to live by faith in God. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we genuinely want to please Him. Yet our faith routinely proves weak. Our faith falters as we cave in to fear and anxiety, to self-sufficiency and sinful passions. What we perhaps consider too seldom in our battle for faith is the reality that our trust in God never rises higher than our vision of who God is. We can only believe God to the degree that we know that He is there. We can only trust God to the degree that we know He is trustworthy. We can only depend upon God to the degree that we know He rules with sovereign authority over all that comes to pass. I'm simply not going to have a strong faith in a God that I'm not sure is there. I'm not going to have a strong faith in a God I'm not sure is trustworthy, who may not always have my best interest in view. I am not going to have a strong faith in a God I believe is not always capable of rescuing me. I may be convinced of His love, but I do not know that He really has the power and authority to come to my aid. As we labor to grow in faith, we need a grand vision of who God is. We need to know the God revealed in the Bible for who He truly is. We realize that our small vision of God hinders our faith, our trust, and our dependence upon Him. To this end, we've been searching together one particular aspect of that revelation in this series on providence. We've discovered in various passages of Scripture that God continually and freely exerts His influence upon the world so as to steer the created order and the course of history to the final destination for which He created all things in accordance with His eternal purposes. We brought texts together that make this clear that this is our sovereign God. This is the God that we serve. We've then asked, well, what is the basis of this governing power of God? Isaiah 14 says, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Listen to these verses again as we come into the text before us today. Proverbs 19, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Lamentation 3, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? As we look at the basis of God's governing providence, we see that it is based upon His will, upon what He has decreed, what He has ordained, what He desires. We then ask, well, what is the reach? Does this just deal with the big things of life? Does it just deal with people? We saw that the governing providence of God is over every aspect of the natural realm. The psalmist says, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. It is He who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. This, the revelation of God who has created and knows how all this works. We see over every aspect of the natural realm, from pole to pole of human experience. 1 Samuel 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. And then down to the infinitesimal twists and turns of what we might call chance. Not simply the big Lord killing and Lord bringing to life, but the small The lot, the die is thrown on the table. The coin is flipped into the air, Proverbs 16.33. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, how does this work itself out? 
Are we merely human robots pre-programmed to do God's will? We've looked at the method of God's governing providence and we come back to that point today. Let's remember two things that we've noted as we've looked at Scripture and we've discerned various texts. The first is the confluence of divine sovereignty and human freedom. They are compatible ideas. God designs and orders all that comes to pass. But human beings act with freedom in the midst of all of that. But we qualify that then secondly, and we will see that again today, the subordination of human freedom to sovereignly ordered circumstances. That is, we act freely and willingly, we choose what we choose, but it is God who orders the circumstances around us. We are not entirely free to determine those circumstances. We're not entirely free to determine how we will respond to the things of this life. But God in His sovereign ordination brings certain circumstances to bear upon us that we choose willingly and freely according to His sovereign design. This is what the Bible teaches repeatedly. And I bring these things again to your mind as we come into the text today and bring, at least in this series, to some degree, a closure on this idea of the method of divine providence. God sovereignly ordering this world. Human beings acting with wisdom and exercising their will freely. We witness this in the passage before us. The sovereign purposes of God. And we see them working out particularly in a very difficult time for the southern kingdom of Judah. This will draw to some degree upon our knowledge of the Old Testament background. Let's remember in the context here, and I invite you to Isaiah chapter 36. As we come to Isaiah 36, the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered by Assyria. And the Israelites were deported. So thinking of your Bible map, if you have that in view, the kingdom of Israel is to the north, the kingdom of Judah is to the south. Assyria, the strongest empire, is to the north of Israel. So those in Judah know that very recently the king of Assyria has come into Israel, has captured the city of Samaria and the surrounding villages and cities, and has taken the Israelites captive. They're very aware of this in Judah. Now recently, the ruthless king Sargon II of Assyria died. And his equally ruthless son, Sennacherib, is crowned king of Assyria. Now what do you do if you are on the fringes of a kingdom and there's been a change of a king? Many times what would happen is these fringe subject kingdoms would rebel. Let's see if the son is as tough as the father on us. Let's see if we can arrange a little different situation that's better for us. And this is exactly what King Hezekiah of Judah does. He rebels against Sennacherib. Sennacherib does not take this well. He comes down from the north through what's now conquered Israel into Judah. And he sets up his army there. And he conquers one walled city after another. We have in fact a document that survives from this time that is written by a scribe of Sennacherib claiming that 46 walled cities had been conquered in Judah. And countless other villages have been overrun. So systematically, Sennacherib is is strangling Judah by destroying her cities. And you might say, well, why doesn't he go to Jerusalem first? It's a good question. He does not head there not because he fears Jerusalem. The Assyrian army can crush Judah easily. But there is a king in Egypt from Cush, a Nubidian king, Tirhaka, who has conquered Egypt. He is to the south of Judah. And if he chooses to bring his army north into Judah, Sennacherib wants to be ready for him. So he's conquering all these smaller walled cities and he's preparing for an invasion from the south potentially. While he is besieging Lachish, this is a city in in Judah, he's besieging that. So his army is surrounded trying to get into these, these walls of the city. 
Hezekiah has a change of heart. And he says, you know what, I think I made a mistake here in rebelling against the king of Assyria. So he sends a delegation down to Lachish from Jerusalem and says, what do you want? We'll do anything. And Sennacherib says, here's what it's going to cost you. He gives him the price. So much silver, so much gold. Send the message back up. So Hezekiah is scrambling to try to gain the peace by bringing this tribute together. It's a hefty financial penalty. And as he's scrambling to bring it together, Sennacherib has a change of heart. And he splits his army, sending a large portion of his army northward up to Jerusalem along with some some delegates to explain to Hezekiah unconditional surrender is all we will accept. So putting this all together as we come to Isaiah 36 and 37 is necessary to understand how pinched Judah is at this point. And we look here in this text, the classic text again of understanding the sovereign workings of God with the choices that people make and the plans that they lay down. That's a fairly lengthy passage. I call upon you to be patient and to work through it. But as we work through it, we're going to see some very key evidences of who God is and how He works in this world. This text is not here simply for our entertainment, although it is a very intriguing passage. But it is here to teach us who the living God is and how He relates to people. So look at His sovereign design. Look at the circumstances that prevail and look at the interactions of people as they willingly choose their way and seek to survive and to conquer in this setting. We come to Isaiah 36 verse 1 in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. We've just described that. So he's in Judah setting up a position to answer the threat of Egypt to the south and seeking to conquer Judah just like he conquered, just like Assyria conquered Israel. Verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, just one of his officials, from Lachish, the city they're besieging in Judah, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, the capital, with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him, these now are delegates from King Hezekiah, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So the delegation comes out from King Hezekiah. But I'd like you to go back to verse 2. A strange statement there. And here's a key to reading Uh, Old Testament narratives. Just remember this. There's never a throwaway phrase. Never. Now wasn't that sort of a strange thing to say where the guy's standing? He's standing, verse 2, by the conduit, by the aqueduct of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Why mention that? It doesn't matter to us where the guy's standing or where they meet him. Why does this matter? if we're thinking very carefully about the text of Isaiah, we realize that this is precisely the place where Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, stood when Isaiah came to him and asked him to make a decision. Going back in time, just briefly, let's take a little trail backwards in time. Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was in a similar position of great danger. There was an alliance of Israel with Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. These two kings had come together and said, we are going to crush you, Ahaz. We are going to conquer Israel. Now, in that moment, Ahaz has two choices. He can trust God as he knows he is supposed to, or he can ally with one of the pagan nations around And in his heart, he wants to create an alignment with Assyria. You remember in that moment, Isaiah comes to him and says, Ahaz, trust God. Don't join with this godless nation. 
trust God to deliver you from this alliance of these two kings. Remember the one other thing. Isaiah says, ask for a sign. Any sign at all. God will conquer this alliance. Israel will be spared. And what does Ahaz say? Oh, uh, no. Uh, Far be it for me to to tempt God with asking for a sign. I, I really don't need to do that. The truth of the matter is he doesn't want a sign. Because he does not want to trust God. He wants to trust Assyria. He likes the idea of Israel and Assyria hand in hand. Fighting off Israel and Syria and perhaps then turning southward to conquer Judah. He does not want to trust God. you remember what God says in that place? I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call His name God with us. In a sense, as God moves past Ahaz and his stubbornness and his sinful lack of dependence upon God, in that moment, God points to the Messianic Deliverer, the ultimate King who will come and who will rule with a rod of iron in perfection and grace and conquest. I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. Now, it's not a mistake that we have a reference here that Hezekiah is right at this place. And there's a similar decision to be made. Will he trust God or will he trust Assyria? You see the irony of it. His father trusted Assyria and now Assyria is besieging his land. No, now it's will he trust the Egyptian king that's coming from the south. What will he do? How will he respond? He sends his delegates out, and at this point now, the Assyrian army is going to seek to convince those in Jerusalem to simply give up. Surrender. This is a worthless game. Obviously, we are going to crush you. Send everybody out of the city and spare us all of the problems. Verse 3. Or verse 4 rather. Note his argument which is layered with a number of arguments against staying and fighting. Verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Notice the word trust. It will become a, a repeating theme through this discussion. On what do you rest this trust of yours? And that indeed is the ultimate question. Even from this enemy, Hezekiah is facing the question, on whom am I going to trust? On what am I going to put my dependence? Do you think, verse 5, that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you trust that you have rebelled against Sennacherib? Listen, Hezekiah and all of you people of Judah, the only thing you have is propaganda. That is not going to stand up against the Assyrian army. So just give up. Verse 6, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. You see how he anticipates. Well, maybe we're not simply fighting you alone. Maybe we're depending on Egypt to come to our aid. That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. If your trust is in words, that's ridiculous. If your trust is in the king of Egypt, forget it. He continues his boast. Verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not He whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now here's great confusion on the part of the Rabshakeh. There's no theological categories to understand what's going on in Judah at all. Basically, what he knows is that Hezekiah has led reforms. What he doesn't understand is the purpose for those reforms. There were these altars all over Judah in their syncretistic worship of God and the pagan idols. Hezekiah comes in and wrecks many of these altars. The Assyrians assume that the people of Israel are not going to be happy with Hezekiah. And indeed, many of them are not. They have no categories for understanding what Hezekiah was doing and why he was calling everyone to worship in Jerusalem. But they read this as 
Remember, your king Hezekiah has really made you all very mad. And he's very self-oriented to have all of the worship come to Jerusalem. You don't like this guy anyway. Are you going to lean on him for deliverance? But here at this place in verse 7, there is also a direct assault on God. Are you going to trust in the God whose altars have been taken down? Come now. Now he really gets boasting here. Verse 8, Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You don't have a cavalry. It's like going against an army of tanks and all you have is slingshots. We have a cavalry. We have chariots and horses. You can't even put riders on them if we gave them over to you. You're depending on the cavalry of Egypt to get, come against us. We're going to crush you and them. Don't rest in them. Don't trust in yourself. Your army is useless before us. Verse 10, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now we don't know exactly what that means. If God has in some sense revealed knowledge to Sennacherib to destroy Judah, perhaps what's really happening is they're listening to the words of Isaiah who in chapter 10 speaks of the menace of Assyria. He was absolutely right. Remember, Ahaz depends on Assyria to deliver him. Now Assyria has besieged Judah. Whatever he means here, he claims that God Himself wants him to come and destroy Judah. Verse 11, little sideline here, but it helps us get sort of a sense of what's happening. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. That was the diplomatic language. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So we don't want anybody to hear what we're talking about here as you threaten us. Well, what do you think, Rabshakeh says? Exactly what he wanted is for them to hear in Hebrew what he had to say. And he makes it very pointed and very graphic. The Rabshakeh says, verse 12, "...has my Master sent me to speak these words to your Master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine?" doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination, does it? Dung and urine is what you're going to be left to eat when we besiege your city of Jerusalem. We're going to starve you out. The food will be gone and you'll have nothing left to eat. We want everybody who is destined for that future to know exactly what they're facing here. We're going to talk in Hebrew. The intimidation is overwhelming. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. We had the emphasis on the word trust before. Now we see this recurring emphasis on deliverance. Who are you going to trust? Will this person deliver? Not Hezekiah. Verse 15, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to that message. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine and a land of bread and vineyards. What's, what's he saying there? He has him shaking with fear with these intimidating words. And now he comes and tries this different angle and says, listen, people living in Jerusalem, if you will just come out and surrender, open the gates of your city, I'm going to let you all go back home. You know that vine where you gain those grapes and 
There's the dates and the figs and the various things that you enjoy that you raise at your own place. You can go right back there and enjoy those things. Everybody knows the Assyrian policy, so he doesn't try to hide it from him and says, after, essentially seems like he's saying, after I take care of the Egyptian threat to the south, we're going to all take a nice little trip up to Assyria and you'll come with me and you'll find that my land is just as nice as yours. I'll treat you very nicely because you choose to surrender here. Come on out. I mean, you're looking at this and saying, what else are we going to do? This army can crush us easily. Now this offer is being made that He will treat us kindly and take care of us and feed us. Verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Again here, he assaults the name of God. And we need to remember this. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Where's Samaria? That's Israel, the capital just to the north. That's been crushed. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? We will destroy you. God Himself cannot stop this army. Now to show how overwhelmed Judah is, They do not respond to this assault with their own words, but they're quiet. Verse 21, they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Their clothes are torn in mourning. It's all over. This is a devastating turn of events. It was bad enough when Sennacherib had said, raise all of this money to pay me off. But now he's saying, you are done. I'm going to crush you. There was, writes one author, a ferocity and a ruthlessness about the Assyrians that the eastern Mediterranean had never seen before and which has probably not been surpassed since, at least on the grand scale. This was a violent army. And they would stop at nothing to crush Judah. They come to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, having said nothing in response They're overwhelmed. There is no hope, humanly speaking. This is not, as we come to understand it, let me just put it in these words, this is not like a really bad professional football team playing the very best professional football team. And the really bad team is saying, we're really in trouble here. This is going to be a really hard game. This is more like a really bad junior high football team finding out that they have to play the Super Bowl champions who are really mad at them. And they're looking up and going, you've got to be kidding me. They're going to run right over us. We're going to have cleat marks right over our chest. This is going to be over in no time. But here, it's very serious. Because here, what is that life is their own lives. Their families their livelihood, there is a menacing army that is poised to come in and crush them. Here is this delegation with a massive army behind, visual undoubtedly from the walls of the city of Jerusalem, saying, we are going to come back here if you don't surrender and you're going to rue the day that you turned away from us. They come back to Hezekiah. So we see this tremendous trial as it builds in chapter 36. In chapter 37, we see the introduction of a sovereign Savior into the account. Where will Hezekiah turn? Where will the people of Judah turn? Verse 1 of 37, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. What had his father done? Ahaz had ignored God. You know, Isaiah, I really don't have time for this. I really don't want to ask for a sign. I really don't want to get involved in what God thinks here. Hezekiah goes for the temple. 
He goes to the house of God and throws himself at the mercy of God in humility tearing his clothes and placing his faith and his dependence upon God. And he sent Eliakim, verse 2, who was over the household in Shebna, the secretary and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And they said to Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah the king, this day is a day of distress of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. This is a horrible scene like a a woman who's pregnant and giving birth but who runs out of energy and dies giving birth. This is a horrible, horrible event. They say that it might be Isaiah, as you talk to God, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left here in Judah and Jerusalem. Now you notice here what drives Hezekiah as he sends this message to Isaiah. Notice it there in verse 4. It is, they have come to mock the living God. Perhaps God will hear. Well, God has heard it. But He means this in the pregnant sense of the term. The fullest sense of the term. That God may come to act in behalf of His name and His people and protect those that He loves from this menace of Assyria. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Two amazing things here. Don't be afraid. What? It reminds me of Jesus when the boat is sinking and the disciples are there with Him and the storm is swamping their boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus says, Don't fear. What else are you supposed to do? What are they supposed to do but fear? But the thing is, if you know God, there is no situation that has to create fear. There's a natural fear, undoubtedly. I don't know that we could ever control. But if we come to understand the greatness and the power of God, there really is no need for debilitating fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The king of Assyria has reviled whom? Me. He has spoken against me, the true and living God. He's taking me on. Not simply you. Behold, verse 7, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. What? How is that going to happen? It's like this little kid standing before this tsunami wave looking up at this wall of water just about to wipe him right off the face of the earth. And Isaiah says, don't fear, it's going to go away. Yeah, right. How's that going to happen? Isn't it ironic? What the Rab Shekha says is don't rest in words. You can't just listen to the propaganda of Hezekiah. We're coming here with a real live army to crush you. Don't rest in words. But he will hear a word and turn back home. A simple word will send him away to his death. Not here in Judah conquering Jerusalem, but in his own land of Assyria. Amazing. How will this be? Verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. The siege on Lachish was now over and Sennacherib has moved now on to another city while the Rabshakeh is up in Jerusalem. So he comes back to the king and joins him here at Libna. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, this is this Egyptian conqueror, he has set out to fight against you. Now you see here that things are beginning to turn. Circumstances controlled by the sovereign God are beginning to turn against the king of Assyria. 
And what does he do? When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. We we understand now where this king is. He's saying, okay, here it comes. From the south, this king is coming up and he's going to face us with his chariots and with his sizable army. That is proven because it's conquered Egypt. There's going to be a battle here. I got this little fly in my face over here. Or here in, in our building, we talk about box elder bugs, right? That show up every once in a while. That irritating little bug that's flying in my face. That's Judah. He turns around north and says to Hezekiah, don't let anybody listen to Hezekiah to say that God's got anything to do with this. I'm going to crush this king from Egypt, and when I turn around, you are going to wish you had left Jerusalem. Don't let anybody believe this lie from Hezekiah that God has anything to do with this. Behold, verse 11, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? I'll crush Egypt. And I ask you, have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Where are they? I'll crush you too. Don't forget it. What Hezekiah does now is crucial to the narrative. He has sought the face of God, but here now he turns very pointedly and prays. Hezekiah, verse 14, received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. You see where he's taking his problem. In some sense, as Sennacherib is going to face the king from Egypt, there's not much he can do to appeal to him. Perhaps he could align forces with him in some way, but none of that is what Hezekiah chooses to do. He prays to the Lord, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. beam. What's that mean? The glory cloud hovering above the Ark of the Covenant right there in the temple in Jerusalem. He comes to the throne of God and makes His request known. You are God, You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, You have made heaven and earth. None of the other gods have done that. You have. Incline Your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open Your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib which He has sent to mock, not Judah, to mock the living God. He has taken on your glory and has sought to crush it with His mockery. He is now going to take on your people and seek to bring them to their knees. God, open your ears and hear. Not that God's on vacation. But Hezekiah is saying, God, I need you. I want to do this in conjunction with you. Truly, O Lord, it's the truth. The kings of Assyria, verse 18, have laid waste all the nations and their lands. But God, they've cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Yes, Assyria has gone into all of these kingdoms. But remember, Their gods were thrown on a pile and burned. You are the Creator of heaven and earth. You are the living God. So now, O Lord, verse 20, our God, save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone are the Lord. Now, he's had assurance from Isaiah, but he continues to pray here with earnestness that God would bring about what He has prophesied. That he would stand for the glory of his own name against these gods and against this king. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I want you to very carefully consider these next words. Because you have prayed to me. Because you have prayed to me. 
concerning Sennacherib of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Does prayer have anything to do with this? God says, I am responding to your prayer. And let me give you this further assurance. Verse 22, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. The poetry here is of, in a sense, a rapist coming against a virgin woman and being thwarted in the attempt. So that this woman now can gloat over and rejoice over this one's failure. I've been spared. There's joy. That's what Judah is going to do to Assyria. This little child on the edge of the beach looking at the tsunami wave is going to laugh at the wave. 23, whom have you mocked and reviled, God asks. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. The Assyrian king has not simply mocked the, the Judah. He has mocked the Holy God. And there is a sovereign God in heaven who is powerful to handle such a situation. He goes on and says, verse 24, By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. What's the point? I've come from the north through Lebanon, and even the great trees of Lebanon cannot stop this army. We just cut the trees down and keep right on moving. I dug wells, verse 25, many texts read, in foreign lands. And drank waters there in those foreign lands. What's the point? I've come into southern Judah where it's very dry. An army's never going to survive in these dry circumstances in this desert. Well, this army does. We just dig our own wells. We have so many soldiers. We are so powerful. We've dug our own wells. And we are stationed here now in southern Judah ready to meet any problem to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. When we crush Egypt, we're going to go down there and the canals and the mud of the Nile Delta will not bother us at all. We'll take our army right across it. We'll dry it up. We have so many soldiers. That's your boast. Now listen to this. Because you prayed to Me, God says. Now, He turns to Assyria and says, here is your boast. Verse 26 is amazing. God says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Determine what? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass of the housetops blighted before it is grown. They would grow grass on their housetops to keep it cool. And here's a picture of this grass that's been scorched by the sun and cannot grow on the roof. Did you hear this? Do you believe this? This is what the Sovereign God reveals about Himself. God has ordained all that the Assyrian army has done. You are boasting, here's what we've done as we've gone through Lebanon. Here's what we've done as we've gone through Judah. Here's what we're going to do to Egypt. And what does God say? He takes it right out of the king's mouth and says, I've determined that long ago. What you are doing to crush Lachish and Libna I planned from days of old to bring it to pass. We have an Assyrian king here who is doing everything he wants to do and he's really on quite a winning streak. He is crushing city after city, but God does not say to him, I've seen what you're doing and I am going to come back at you. I've seen you crushing these cities and now you're going to have to face Me, the King of Heaven, as I respond to what you've done. I didn't really know what you would do until you did it, but now that you've done it, I'm going to enter in at this place and crush you. Why 46 cities later? God just wake up all of a sudden and say, okay, that's enough. 
That is not at all how God looks at this. I don't know what you, a free human agent, is going to decide to do, but now that you've crushed this many cities, and now that Hezekiah has prayed, I'm going to wake up and get involved here, and you're in big trouble, king of Assyria. No. He says, everything you've done, I planned it before you did it. I've brought it about. I've brought it to pass, these cities that you've crushed. We're going to have to tease out and work out what is God's place then in evil. We won't deal with that today, Lord willing, in the future. But we have to come to terms with what God says and how He looks at this. It's not simply I'm going to respond. It's I have ordained all that you've done. So we see here again the evidence of compatibilism. An Assyrian army acting with full desire, willingly, freely, crushing city after city, but God claiming that He has planned this all to happen and asking of us that we trust Him. Do you know this God? It's a God that many Christians don't really know. They know only a God who has nothing to do with evil. It's not the God of the Bible. Again, we'll have to tease out how that works itself out. We know that God is not evil. But he goes on and says, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back on the way by which you came. As the Assyrian army often treated its captors, they would treat them like animals. So God uses that very imagery and says, I'm going to put a hook in you and I'm going to turn you around and send you home and you are not going to step a foot in Jerusalem because I am the sovereign God. And I planned this long ago. Verse 30, God now speaks to Hezekiah, to Judah, And he says, this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs of that? As you're building your homes again and as you're spending time getting things repaired and put together, I'm going to bring fertility to the land so that there's going to be growth from what's already been planted. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You're not going to be eating under the authority of Sennacherib. You're not going to be eating in Assyria. You're going to be right here at home in peace. Verse 31, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I will bring this about. I'm not stopped by the king of Syria. His army is powerful. It's menacing. But they will cause you no more trouble. Why? Because of what God wills. As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? No one. Therefore, verse 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. Notice this. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. For my own sake. Is God selfish? Does He just act for His own selfish purposes? He is self-centered. In the right sense of the word. He knows that He is God alone. And for Him to act any other way would be idolatrous. Would be untruthful. God alone is God. God alone has ultimate glory. Only in God is our soul's satisfaction. And He wants the world to see that and to know that. He's brought it into being that it might see who He is. And for Him to act any other way would be to cease to be God. We just put him on a shelf with all of the other gods. 
He alone is the living God. I act for the sake of my name in all that I do. And I act for the sake of my servant David. Now David's long dead. But there was the promise of David's seed. Of a kingdom that would last forever. Of a greater son of David who will come. I always act in the interest of that kingdom. Always. So I will act for the sake and the glory of My name, for it has been trampled through the mud. It's been despised. Who will deliver Judah? I will. And I will act because of My promise to David. Verse 36, so undramatic. But here's what takes place. How is God going to stop this tsunami? Verse 36 And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. That, my friends, is what you call a game changer. A whole new day. There's actually an ancient account in an ancient historian of this event. Now, he says some things that seem to be kind of muddled and and, and a bit different than the account, and there could be many reasons for that. But Herodotus speaks of this destruction. He claims that it was rats who came into the Assyrian army that night and infected them as they bit the soldiers. We don't know. We're not told, and it doesn't matter. But this may seem like fantasy to some, not to Herodotus, the ancient historian. This happened. Everybody knew it. This army was devastated that night. Through some means that God chooses, He brings about what is so improbable, impossible in our human thinking for this Assyrian army to be stopped. But the 185,000 are dead. What does Sennacherib want to do right about now? He wants to go home. Verse 37, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. And he returned home. And he lived in his capital city of Nineveh, just as God had prophesied. Twenty years pass. Verse 38, And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Sharezer his son struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his, in his place, just as God had said would happen. There's irony here, isn't there? Hezekiah goes into the house of God with nothing, pleading for help and for mercy, and God takes out 185,000 soldiers in one night. Sennacherib goes into the house of his God and he is cut down by his sons. His God cannot protect him at all. The pagan gods are useless because they're not alive. The living God can act however He pleases and no king or army on earth can stand against Him. He ordains all things that come to pass for the sake of His name and for the salvation of His people. As we see this in text after text after text, we are to inculcate this reality that God is always working for the glory of His name. He is always working for the salvation of His people. He always keeps His promises. And there is a coming kingdom that will never end. And on the throne of that kingdom will rule King Jesus, David's greater Son, forever and ever. God will bring it about. And I ask you as we look at this text, how much faith can you put in this God? How much dependence can we put in this God? We face trials so much smaller than what Hezekiah faced. And we may go to prayer immediately seeking the help of God. And that's a good thing. But isn't it often true that if the truth were known about the very core of our being, that we really don't know if God is able to deliver? 
or if that he if he cares. We're instructed here again that God always cares for his people. And remember, we don't throw over this. This is the big stuff that God deals with. Kingdoms and kings and armies and salvation history. Remember, He rules sovereignly over the flip of a coin. Our God has everything to do with everything and He is entirely, absolutely powerful to rule in any way that He purposes or chooses. Can you trust that God? The problem is not that our God is incapable. The problem is not that God is weak. simple problem is that our faith is so small in this God of glory and wonder and power. I say to you, Christian, whatever trial you go through, whatever discouragement you face, whatever you walk through in this life, no matter what it is, you can know that there is a God who is absolutely powerful to intervene and do as He chooses and as He wills. Knowing that in all that He does, He is working to seat on the throne of David, the one born of a virgin, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will not be thwarted. So often our prayers get lost as they become self-centered and we simply want our problems to be removed. But may we learn to pray prayers that see the glory of God as the ultimate issue. May we learn to pray prayers pleading with God to contend for the glory of His name, to show Himself great, to show Himself mighty, to show His love. Laboring with God, not to rage against Him as the nations do, Psalm 2, but to work with Him in our prayers to accomplish His glory, resting and depending on the fact that He will do what is right and what is good always because it's His nature. It's His character. It's who He is. And I may speak to someone today, you have not come to terms with this God. You saw how it ended for this Assyrian king. You may write that off and just say, well, that's just a story. Kind of interesting how much history survives even outside of the Bible that confirms this story. So I wouldn't encourage you to do that. But I would say, on the other hand, simply out of compassion for you, that you too are going to face this God. No Assyrian king could stand up against Him. No king could stand up against Him anywhere in the end What He says and who He is and His judgment is what will rule. But the beauty of it is that He acts for the sake of His servant David. He acts for the sake of the salvation of His people. And He has come in the person of Christ to bear the penalty of our sin. Having conquered sin and conquered death through His death on the cross, He has resurrection life And thus the Son, Jesus Christ, will live forever and reign. The greatest thing that you can do as one separated from that God is to turn from your sin and to embrace Jesus Christ as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Savior from sin. I encourage you to speak to someone today that you might come to know the wonder of walking in fellowship with this God who is entirely trustworthy, in whom we can entirely depend, and who loves us with an infinite love. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, Father, for the wonder of Your Word and acknowledge how weak our faith, how poor our affections in response to this truth that we see. But we are awed and amazed by Your power and Your wonder. And we confess our sins of how often we doubt You. We think that You don't care. We think that You're not powerful. Our faith proves weak and that's why we depend on ourselves and why we turn to idols. Things to help us get along in this life. Things to trust in place of You. How wicked it is. God, I pray that we would be rightly inspired by Hezekiah who turned to You in prayer and rightly encouraged as that act points to Jesus Christ 
who said, not my will, but yours be done, and who implicitly trusted you through the death of the cross so that now He is exalted and the coming King. May we learn to rest in this message and trust in You, our God, who is wholly dependable, all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise. Teach us to trust and teach us then to rejoice. Through Christ we pray. Amen.